For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Ah, thank you. So, um, uh, Bo Goldwitzer is uh, formerly the Tenzo head of the kitchen at Ancient Dragons Endgate. Of course, we haven't had a working kitchen since March 2020 when we had to leave our uh, uh, wonderful little uh, storefront temple. So we'll see what happens when we find a new full-time long-term temple and how we take care of the kitchen then. But in the meantime, uh, Bo uh, is a long-term practitioner at Ancient Dragon and uh, also will be joining the board of Ancient Dragon starting in January. And I uh, am glad that you're here, Bo, to speak to us. Thank you so much. Uh, Can everybody hear me okay? Yeah, we can all hear you. Yes. Great. Uh, it's excellent to see everybody. Um, I have to say it's not that I have favorites or anything, but it's really excellent to see Jan. I haven't seen Jan in like two years. So, uh, that's pretty awesome. Um, uh, so yeah, thank you for being here tonight. Um, and thank you to Tigan for inviting me to give the talk and, and, you know, I don't know if, especially on these occasions, but I, I feel a lot of gratitude toward the Sangha in general, just for um, the support of my practice in this period. Um, I really consider it a privilege to uh, be able to give a talk like this. And, you know, I, I'm, I really, for this talk, I'm, try, you know, focused on just my practice. And, um, and so I, ho- I, I hope this is a practical talk. Um, I'm going to talk about this year. I mean, I guess that seems natural, you know, here toward the end of it. Um, And that's been a very challenging year, um, you know, personally, but I think safe to say generally as well. Um, And it feels like it's kind of, you know, really ramping up here at the end. Uh, So, um, that'll be sort of the theme is, is sort of the challenge of this year. Um, and, and personally, it's kind of the reason why I'm giving the talk at home rather than at Ebenezer was because, or is because I was exposed to someone whose, um, husband was diagnosed with COVID. Um, so we thought it would be safer for me to give the talk from home. But the good news is actually, I just found out like an hour ago that she, um, tested negative. So she was the one who I was most, you know, was in contact with. So, I mean, the bad news is her husband obviously has COVID. So, you know, thoughts to him, he's feeling better though. Um, but also I can't help but think, you know, feel a lot of gratitude for, you know, the vaccines and I've been boosted and it, it, I I just, I feel like uh, it's almost a miracle that, you know, given the close contact that neither she or I um, have tested positive. Um, A little bit 
it's a coincidence too. I'm a teacher and I just started my break. You know, today was sort of the first official day of it. And now this has happened on both of my last breaks on, on the Thanksgiving break. Uh, on that for the first day of our break, I got a text that I had been in a meeting with someone who tested positive. And then on this break, I got, I received a text that <laughs> I'd been getting car rides home with someone who was in close contact with someone who's been, you know, uh, tested positive. So there's a kind of dark humor in this. If, if you look hard enough, maybe, um, but that, you know, all of that is sort of a small piece of the challenge of this year. And, you know, I want to take the opportunity to talk to talk about some Buddhist practices, I guess you would call them, or stories, conversations that have helped me, um, you know, get through some of these challenges or challenging periods throughout the year. And it's my sincere hope, I mean, uh, that for the conversation part of this, that I will, you know, and that we'll be able to hear some of um, your stories, practices, um, Buddhist or not, that have um, helped you get through this challenging time as well. I think uh, this can be a community effort and, you know, there's no end to the, you know, the repository of practices that we can make to help each other sort of navigate this time. Um, I'll start with the spring. Um, you know, again, I mentioned I was, a I'm a teacher and, you know, this whole year has been challenging teaching wise. The spring, spring was no different. Um, for whatever reason, I found, you know, that period very stressful. Um, and it's odd when I think back on it, it feels like five years ago, uh, there was a lot of uncertainty. We had just been vaccinated. Um, in terms of my specific class, many of my families or many of the families of the kids I teach opted not to have their kids in school. So I was trying to figure out, you know, we just had like, and I know Alex is a teacher too, so uh, he could probably relate to some of this as well. I, I taught for three quarters of the year online. And here I was then now faced with kind of teaching both online and then to a few kids in person too. Um, and the kids hadn't been just in, you know, the kids who were in person hadn't been in school for, you know, just over a year. Um, so, but they were there all of a sudden where most of that, you know, most of the kids weren't there. So it felt very ghost town like in the school. It was very weird. Um, there wasn't sort of that lively atmosphere that you're used to kind of encountering in a school. Um, I felt like, the kids were sort of, you know, the kids that were in person tried maybe on their own to make up for some of that <laughs> lost noise. Uh, so even with fewer students in person, there were um, challenges there. And personally, you know, I'm someone who uh, has a predisposition toward anxiety. And that spring, I, I really, you know, my anxiety uh, amped up quite a bit. I was having a hard time sleeping. I was really not enjoying the work like I thought I should be. Um, and uh, so that was, that was kind of the, the situation for me then at that time. And at the, at, you know, around that same time, and I actually can't even remember who gave the talk at Ancient Dragon. I'll assume it was Tigan, but I don't know for sure, just by 
the odds it was Tigan, but it could have been someone else. Uh, someone gave a talk on chapter 25 of the Lotus Sutra, the chapter on Avalo uh, And I found that talk and then, you know, a really consoling in this challenging time that I was having. And that, that's sort of the theme of this. What I want to talk about is just um, practices, et cetera, that console that comfort in challenging times. Um, and if you know this chapter, and I really probably should have had us chant that tonight, but in any case, um, it, 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 it sort of outlines almost these miraculous practices that Kanzeon is able to achieve if, if one simply mindfully invokes Kanzeon. It's everything from, um, you know, if there are raging beasts with sharp fangs, um, that if you mindfully invoke Kanzeon, those beasts will go in all directions. If you're a prisoner, if you mindfully invoke Kanzeon, you, you will be free. If an evil man uh, is intent on harming you, uh, if you mindfully invoke Kanzeon, um, you won't have a single hair on your head harmed. I am skeptical of sort of the miraculous aspect of it. I mean, rationally I am, but I have to say again that hearing the talk, reading the text a little bit with the time I had, um, was again very consoling to me, just this um, feeling, not necessarily that by invoking Kanzan was I going to see all of my troubles sort of fixed, but that there was someone or some entity to turn to. Um, and so I started this practice of, you could say prayer, but I was really writing poems to Kanzan each morning before I would go to work. Um, and I ended up writing about 60 of these little poems and I thought I might share a few of these with you just to kind of give you a, a flavor of what these were like. This was written March 10th. And actually this time I wasn't even back at school. I had taken a, a leave from school because my wife and I were not totally on board with the district's plan in terms of going back to school at that point. And we thought it would be safest if I took a leave, which was its own sort of hard thing to do on this was my first year of teaching. So anyway, this is the poem I wrote on March 10th. Kanzone, help me be with my fears that might be the way of life to not be too far away. Help me mingle with my fears, not to keep them too close, but to have them as guests, not long-term guests, just guests who stay for a bit but that you are not necessarily best friends with. Then March 22nd, I wrote, Kanzeon, at rest in the ear of the moon. Kanzeon, arms wide in the middle of the ocean. Kanzeon, sunflower. March 31st, I wrote, I commit, vow, to being mindful of body, breath, mind, sensations, I read in the paper today about the witnesses to the murder of George Floyd. I did not know so many of them were so young. April 5th, I wrote, crying out to Kanzon about my stomach ache. Well, it's more like butterflies. We must protect the places butterflies come from. 
April 10th, I wrote, the Lotus Sutra says of the powers of Kanzan that you might be pushed from the top of a mountain, but while flying in the air, falling, that if you invoke Kanzan's name, you will stay in the sky, hanging there like the sun. April 27th, I wrote, Kanzan, my weary eyes, my sleepy eyes, see me, see this world as it is. Weary ears hear the world as it is. Weary hands work the world. Weary feet walk the world. Suzuki Roshi woke with his alarm. May 4th, Kanzeon, with your hands, your heart, your eyes, help me in pivoting gracefully between what I see, what I may say, and what is beyond what I see, what I may say. Take my hands, eyes, ears, heart, make them yours so that I may skillfully swing on the hinge between what is and what is imagined, the lack of separation of the hinge, which is real, which is the ultimate, beyond this here too. And then finally, May 19th, I wrote, Kanzeon, the fiery pool, make cool water again. Again, uh, I, I'm not sure. It's mysterious to me a little bit where the consolation with this practice came from exactly. I, I feel a lot of resistance to prayer. I grew up a, uh, in a religious tradition that I grew pretty cynical to. And so maybe I, in coupled with that, I grew cynical toward the power of prayer. I never heard anything back from Kanzeon after invoking <laughs> Kanzeon and, and, you know, no text messages, no nothing. Um, but again, I guess just to do this practice of writing the poems, to speak as if Kanzion was real, was enough. Um, and they, that's something I've been thinking about a lot is uh, practicing as if something is real, you know. Um, that's, that's, that's a bit like play, too. You, you play at something as if it's real, and that can be a very... A powerful thing, I think, um, you know, using your imagination. Uh, I feel like that's part of that chapter 25 is whether you believe in that miraculous power or not, it has now put that vision in your head of possibility. And that that is powerful on its own. The possibility to um, undermine or cut away or cut off suffering. Um, another. Um, so. That was a practice, right, based on a talk I heard. This was um, another piece that was consoling to me, comforting, was a book, actually, that uh, Tygen gave me in the spring, Reb Anderson's book, uh, Entering the Mind of Buddha. And actually, I think he gave it to me around when Alex and I maybe helped dig his car out of the big uh, snow mound that (laughs) it was buried under. (laughs) Um, but I didn't end up reading it until the spring. So reading this book was, you know, again, during this period of a lot of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty was really helpful. Um, and there's a lot of great stuff in the book. It's about the six paramitas, but one story in particular has been the one that I've kind of carried around with me for this year. Um, and the story goes like this. I'll just quote it at length. There was an old woman and a young man who lived in Japan. Or maybe it was China. The young man deeply respected the old woman, and he received various teachings from her. 
At one point, the young man was going away from the old woman, and he asked her if she had any parting, parting instructions for him. She said, no matter what happens, I try to say, thank you very much. I have no complaints whatsoever. The young man tried to practice that way, but was not able to do so consistently. Sounds familiar to me. Sometime later, he was able to meet his old teacher again. He said to her, I'm sorry to confess that I have failed to practice what you taught me. The old teacher responded, thank you very much. I have no complaint whatsoever. And that, Reb writes, is a story about wholehearted generosity. So this is in the chapter about the generosity paramita. And he continues to write, the ancient uh, meditation master Huangbo instructed us to meet whatever comes with no mind. This could be rephrased as an instruction in meeting whatever comes with complete relaxation. I see the Bodhisattva spirit of generosity at the heart of this teaching. In the early years, the Buddhist teachers did not or the Buddhist teachings did not occur in the monasteries or formal training centers. Whatever the Buddha met, whenever the, wherever the Buddha met people, he met them with complete relaxation and openness. So more than even the latter part there is again, that story, that phrase, thank you very much. I have no complaint whatsoever. It's very challenging. I relate to the student in that story, you know, he was not able to practice it consistently. I have not been able to practice that consistently, you know, since reading it in the spring. Um, but it's something that I have tried to keep in mind, especially for this particular school year. Um, <laughs> now we're back in person um, as of this fall, and I have uh, in two separate classes, reading and writing classes. Um and I have challenging students in there. I mean, all the students are challenged, I think, right now after many of them not being in school for a couple of years. Um, there's anxiety. There's uh, depression. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty. We're all wearing masks all day. So it's constantly like, could you speak up? Uh, could you, yeah, me imploring the students to keep their masks on for the sake of all of our safety? Um, and not to mention, I have students who have lost um, relatives to COVID. I have students who have lost family members to violence as well. Um, so that's just to put the context around what is generally, I think, um, a mental health crisis for young people at the moment. And I'm seeing a lot of that in my own class. And, and that's very, so it's very difficult, but it's urgent to meet people with, in the spirit of, thank you very much. I have no complaint whatsoever. Uh, well, it's not easy to do though. Um, cause I want to complain a lot. Uh, I want to complain about, you know, the fact that our country just passed a $768 billion defense budget but we can't afford to have in our school, at least more than one counselor per the 800 students that we have in our school. Um, I want to complain, you know, <laughs> about some of my students who really challenge me. Um, 
who whose skills I'm not always able to meet um, or whose, you know, current lack of skills in terms of knowing how to handle different social situations, I'm not able to meet um, because I'm still, you know, I've, I taught before at the college level, but I'm a new elementary teacher and that's a whole new ball game. Um, so, but reminding myself as much as possible, thank you very much to feel gratitude for this field of practice in a way that's been presented to me and this, these challenges and that gratitude builds in my experience, that context for understanding the students or admitting that I don't understand them all the time. Right. Like, uh, to say thank you is to kind of accept absolutely where they are in the moment and where I am as well. So, um, not, not to get too hard on them for the causes and conditions of their particular lives. And then also not to get too hard on myself for <laughs> failing pretty frequently at meeting their needs. Um, teaching is reflection, so I'm not content to fail in that way but I also can't hold on to the failure just like I wouldn't wish them to in a class, right? That, that, that's how we learn. Reb in this chapter on generosity, or actually I'm not sure if it's this chapter, but it's in the book somewhere, talks about not trying to control people, that trying to control people is actually a, a really harmful thing to do. And uh, so I feel like that goes with this phrase or these sentences. I'm, Thank you very much. I have no complaint whatsoever. It's not about always fixing someone, but just kind of taking in the situation as it is. And beyond that, even feeling gratitude for it, um, not trying to pick and choose a an unchallenging situation versus a challenging one, but just continuing to accept reality. And, and my wife and I were talking about this challenge the other day. And accepting reality is like a gift to yourself and a gift to other people, I feel like. Um, you know, not accepting reality, bucking against it, trying to control it can cause a lot of suffering uh, on your behalf, but it can also cause a lot of suffering for the people around you uh, because you're just not going to be satisfied, I feel like. And so that lack of satisfaction is going to cause you to be pretty unhappy and be somewhat difficult to be with, I feel like. So me accepting a student or their situation, um, it uh, helps me um, be more generous and to build um, and, and, and not to hold on to some idea of how I feel like they should be. Um, fighting reality, picking and choosing, like I said, brings can bring a lot of harm. And as I say this, that doesn't mean that I shouldn't seek to, you know, um, teach and coach and model compassion and good behavior, etc. But that's different than trying to force somebody in a box or trying to um, force reality into some category or some uh, comfortable place that would fit your desire. Um, 
so that was a story I read in the summer, uh, spring, and I, I've really kind of kept with me ever since. Um, the next sort of, well, I don't know if I would call this consoling exactly, but I, this is uh, in the summer. I took up more sort of with more focus, the practice of listening. And this was because a difficult thing happened in our family that I talked about in my last talk at the end of the summer or toward the end of the summer that my wife's mom passed away rather suddenly at the beginning of June. And so I've been with my wife in her process of grief and her family's process of grief um, tried to be there for her as much as possible and grieving, but, and practicing listening. I feel like that would be, that was the best thing that I could do for her as she moved through this grief. But that practice hasn't been easy. Um, you know, in theory, it's easy to say, I am going to do my best to listen and be there. But I found in that practice that um, I'm not always such a good listener. I try, I, 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 you know, to be as present and listening as I'd like to be, but my mind is hungry, right? Always on the search for the next thing. And I, I noticed this during Zazen, thinking of what I want to do next, what I might read, what I might watch, what I might do. And I noticed this while listening too. Um, but, you know, you do your best. And again, it's this thank you very much. I've got no complaint whatsoever. You know, obviously for all of Sue and her family, this was a, a very, has been a difficult um, experience that everyone is still um, working through. And even for yourself or for myself, I've tried to do the best I can in the midst of that. Um, but it's a difficult, uh, still challenging practice. Uh, and then in the fall, as I said, we return back to school and I was <laughs> sort of, I was concerned about, um, you know, how much I would have to dedicate myself to school, what that would mean for practice. Um, I had this sort of maybe selfish idea about practice that I, you know, I was a little afraid of losing it in the midst of dedicating myself to teaching, but I was lucky enough to, um, have a conversation with the Zen priest who was also for a long time an elementary school teacher. And I reached out to her with this question of how to balance teaching and practice. You know, like I said, I was very worried about this, but now in hindsight, it seems kind of absurd. Um, uh, you know, that but in any case, her answer to my questions about this were very helpful and have been kind of consoling in the time since. She said that for her, when she was teaching, practice became seasonal, which I took to mean that, you know, when she was teaching during the school year, she would do as much sitting as possible. But 
she would also put aside sitting when she needed to, and that she would focus on sitting in the summer and, and focus on retreats during the summer too. And hearing this was a, 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 a relief to me. Um, you know, not that I was, you know, looking forward to doing less sitting necessarily, but that there was some flexibility around it. Um, and she, she emphasized to me that teaching was an all in profession that it would be, you know, that it was hard to fit too much else in, but that, that was also the joy of it. And, you know, I'm not trying to say that teaching is somehow more or ranks above any other profession. Um, but it has proven true that, you know, it's difficult to do much else. You know, uh, I'm, I'm, most of my waking thoughts are about teaching at the moment, you know, and I'm sure that'll change as I get further into elementary school teaching. Um, but it's just the case that it is right now. Um, and, you know, I don't want to make this only about teaching, but maybe it's worth all of us kind of thinking of, you know, to, you know, for me, it was helpful not to think that there was some separation between teaching and my work that, and, and Tigan sort of emphasized this with me in some conversations as well, not to think of practice as there's practice and there's not practice. Um, that the teaching that I'm doing, and this would go for, I'm sure so many kinds of work, uh, it is my practice. Um, and that, that becomes clear to me, you know, every day. Um, when I'm called upon to practice compassion and patience and generosity, um, wisdom, flexibility. Um, so this artificial idea that I had that there was some separation between my practice and my work, um, was relieved by this conversation I had with, uh, this teacher and then conversations I had with Tigan as well. Um, and then further into the fall, another uh, piece uh, that was consoling to me, I, I happened to pick up a book at Women and Children's F First Bookstore. Um, the book is called Zen Seeds by a Soto Zen nun, Shundo Aoyama. I had ne never heard of her before, honestly, and I was sort of attracted to the book, mostly because it kind of looked like Zen mind, beginner's mind. Um, but reading the book, again, has been a huge consolation to me. And I want to just read a couple pieces that have been, you know, especially consoling. She has a chapter in the book called Everyone is in the Palm of the Buddha's Hand. And in this chapter, she writes, whether we are aware of it or not, whether we be sinners or saints, we are all living in the palm of the Buddha's hand. Whether the Buddha is denied or praised, the Buddha watches over us all, embracing us unconditionally. And I actually wrote sort of in response a little poem. In the Buddha's hand, sitting, lying down, spinning, catching a frisbee in the eye, falling from the Buddha's hand. The Buddha's hand, we dance until the breath is inside. So, Obviously, 
the there was a consoling factor and just this image for me of being in the Buddha's hand whenever uh, we practice the um, power of that. Um, and then another chapter she wrote called The Gift of the Smiling Face. Um, this also has been with me since I read it. And in this chapter, she writes, to be always smiling seems a small thing, but actually it is hard. Anyone can smile when it suits him, but to be able to smile at any time, to be able to smile even when it does not suit us is no easy task. In the long run, few people can see themselves for what they really are. But when we look in the mirror, we see the face others are going to see. Someone else will be made uncomfortable if we look irritable or angry. Whatever our mood, we should try not to inflict it on others, even if we think that is the way we are and it cannot be helped. We should take responsibility for ourselves and take proper care of ourselves, keeping our face from looking unpleasant and adding to the world's unpleasantness. And she mentions then, the Buddha's list of seven offerings that cost nothing, which includes a smiling face. She writes of the Buddha, he wished that everyone would smile and accept all other people in the way that a mother smiles on her children and opens her arms to embrace them. So since reading this, you know, maybe a couple months ago, I've really been thinking about smiling a lot, um, probably more than any time in my life. And I'm thinking about smiling at school, even though we can't see each other's faces, really, um, because we're all wearing a mask, but we can see each other's eyes. And so I've been conscious of trying to smile more. (laughs) And that actually has made me conscious of sometimes when I'm not, when I've gone a long period without smiling, um, And I feel like I owe to my students to bring, um, you know, smiles to the classroom, to their experience in the classroom, to bring laughter. Um, The two, for me, go hand in hand, really. Um, I find myself kind of laughing at situations that aren't going so well in the class as a consolation. And I feel like smiling does that as well. And it's, it's so easy to do. It's so simple, it's kind of like ridiculous in a way, like silly, goofy, but it can really make, I I feel like it can make a big difference, Um, especially in this time, you know, I'm thinking of the classroom, but it's happening everywhere where it's difficult for people, it's difficult for everybody, let's assume. And so if we can bring um, uh, pleasantness to our situations with other people, Um, I think we should try to. And then finally, the last sort of piece of consoling Buddhist matter that I would present is, you know, something that was just, um, that just occurred, well, in a way, just occurred in the last few weeks, but it's circling back to the first piece I mentioned. Um, I've, I've been taking this class with Paula again on chapter 25 of the Lotus Sutra on Avalokiteshvara. We've been reading this together um, very closely, chanting it. Uh, Along with that, I read Taigen's chapter on Avalokiteshvara from Faces of Compassion. Um, And, you know, 
in this period from Thanksgiving to now where COVID seems to be really ramping up again, obviously, um, <laughs> the politically things are very difficult. Um, you know, this time in school of these three weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas or the holiday, the winter holiday, you know, especially our last week was pretty difficult. I sense from some students that, yes, they were excited for the winter break. And I sense from others that they weren't so excited that they would miss the structure of school. You know, 75% of our students are low income. So sometimes it's a question of how they will, you know, eat when they're not in school and so forth. So, um, you know, where I look at the winter break as, you know, a necessary sort of time to rejuvenate, for students, it can mean a lot of different things. And th this last week before the break, I felt a lot of that anxiety. There was a lot of acting out that just seemed um, uh, that was very difficult to handle. Um, but studying Avalokiteshvara during this time has been a huge help. Um, again, the miraculous sort of content of the chapter. Um, but there are so many other things to this chapter as well. Um, it's written in the chapter that sufferings of sickness, old age, and death, all are gradually erased by Kanzan, whose true regard, serene regard, far-reaching, wise regard, regard with compassion and loving kindness, is ever longed for, ever revered. I was really struck by this use of the word regard, um, and I'm still sort of a little bit confused by it, intrigued by it. It feels hands off to me. Um, you know, how could regard just the regard of a bodhisattva like this mean um, <laughs> the sufferings of sickness, old age and death are all gradually erased. That's the power of just Kanzeon's regard. And, um, you know, in the dictionary regard is, defined as gazing steadily, paying attention. So there must be a lot of power in Kanzeon's turning their uh, attention toward suffering. And it strikes me that to alleviate suffering and, and for whomever, um, attention has to be paid first. If we're not aware of suffering, then um, how can anything be done. And maybe in some ways, this is circling back to um, what I mentioned, the passing of my wife's mom, my mother-in-law, you know, that regard is powerful. Listening is powerful. Presence can be so powerful as, and if it's sincere and all in, it can be so powerful as perhaps to erase, undermine suffering. Um, Tigan's chapter on Kanzeon, um, something I read in there really struck me as well. You can get kind of, I think, lost a bit in, again, the miraculous content of the chapter. Well, like, is it possible that if you mindfully invoke Kanzeon, like, a fiery pit will be turned to a pool of cool water. But something that Tigan mentions was really powerful in that um, 
And especially when you consider it sort of our work in Zen to take on these bodhisattvic qualities to, in a way, again, play act bodhisattvas. I mean, that's sort of how I have come to think of it in a way to, to do the best to um, kind of fill that role. And so in that way, what I really admire about Kanzeon in the content of that chapter is you mindfully invoke Kanzeon and there's no separation between uh, your mindful invocation of Kanzeon and their attention to your situation, right? Um, they're, it's immediate. And that would be something that I think takes a lot of practice, right? Um, I feel like I'm called upon to do that in my work. You know, there's so much, I think someone literally did a study for teachers that you make like six decisions a minute or something like that. And so to have that immediate helpfulness or immediate attention or immediate assistance, someone's calling out for help or someone's calling up out for um, company or cooperation not to have, you know, I, I feel like our culture calls upon us to means test everything, right? To say, to really uh, wonder if someone's suffering is legitimate or not, or authentic, sincere. Um, Kanzion doesn't appear or seem to worry about that too much. Um, the response is there is no gap between the, the situation of suffering and Kanzeon's um, response. And so to me, that's very inspiring, you know, less about um, the miraculous kind of act and more about, and this seems achievable to me, the immediacy of response that with, with enough practice um, and that eternal kind of toolkit of skillful means that you can really be, that quick um, in how you uh, are can be um, of service to someone in a, any situation and service helpfulness. I mean, I think these are complicated categories in a way. Um, none of it is to presume that you have all the answers or that you're in a situation that might be above the person who's suffering. I mean, our practice teaches us that there's no separation between the sufferer and yourself, the person who needs help and yourself, we're all, um, there's no separation. So um, whoever you might be attending to, that is you. <laughs> I mean, as radical as that seems, and, you know, and of course you are what? I don't know. You are realized by myriad things, thankfully. So, this class that I took with Paula, there were three meetings of it, and it was amazing. I have to say, a great, uh, I've never talked so much about compassion with a group of people. And, and we observed, I think, that, you know, that, that's the um, gift of our practice is that we have these forums that, um, where we can talk about something like compassion and the practices that, um, are fertile to it. Uh, and it's hard to think of other forums where that kind of work is happening. 
and that's not right, but it, it seems like it's the case. So uh, the last thing I'll mention is the constant through this year has been, you know, a practice of Zazen and more so than some of the other things I've mentioned. Um, Zazen works in mysterious ways. You know, I, I have a different relationship to Zazen this year than I have in previous years, but I still feel relief and gratitude each time I sit, even if that means by the end of my sitting that I'm like, you know, really hoping that the bell will ring. Um, but Zazen, that constant day-to-day practice, um, there's something, yeah, that, you know, in the background of all this, you know, challenge and consolation and, you know, and, and, and various practices, that's, that feels like the, the bedrock to me, just sitting and breathing and being reminded to breathe. Um, so that's all I have to say about all of that. And again, I would really appreciate um, hearing about any practices or stories or reading or your own writing or whatever expressions that you've had over this year or previous that have helped you get through <laughs> this time. So thank you very much for listening and for your attention. Thank you, Bo. Um, people in, in at Ebenezer or on Zoom, uh, if you have comments or questions for Bo, please feel free. Well, I see Alex in the in Ebenezer over there, and I know Bo teaches fourth grade. I, I'm not sure what grades you teach, Alex, but maybe you have some response about the challenges of teaching. Yeah, Bo, I thought the, that um, your, your talk was incredibly thoughtful, and obviously, um, you know, a, a lot of the things having passed through the same, I, I don't know what else to call it, traumatic uh last you know year and a half or two as educators you know i still remember on uh, you know march 15th of 2019th or march 13th or whatever it was when we you know uh said goodbye to our students for an indeterminate amount of time and um you know things have not been uh the same since and um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, likewise that, you know, my, my practice has uh, become even more important as, um, you know, I mean, uh, that this idea of, of normal, you know, normal from, uh, uh, from the climate um, uh, to uh, our schools, um, and to our political climate that um, that there is no normal anymore and that um, uh, it requires us to be incredibly um, responsive and uh, it it's it's very very difficult but that practice can help us 
um, not be so preoccupied with needing to know what things are going to be like, but to be present and be able to respond to the situation at hand and not from a place of stress and anxiety, but from a place of um, deep compassion and, and creativity. And um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I guess the flip side of, of your, of, of what I was thinking of your conversation with um, the, um, the, the Zen te- the Zen teacher who had also was or or is an an educator um you know i i think um i operate better not when um the work is consuming but um when the when the practice is is consuming or the focal point and it can hold everything in in my life and um, you know tiging gave a talk some weeks ago where he talked about if if um um, if it if it feels depleting or if you're um, you know sort of um, acting from on high to to help people that you know it's you're likely not doing it right and you know the many the thousand arms of Quanzoom are in, are invigorating and uh, responsive and that um, uh, you know, I used to think about, oh, you know, practice has been so helpful for me. How can I turn my students into the sort of legion of, of <laughs> little practitioners? But I, I gave up on that. And and, uh, and what's more important is that um, I ex- express my my Buddha nature when I'm with them, and that we have uh, these moments of intimacy where the where um, arrow point uh, meet and how um, when I feel that we're both changed by that moment of uh, connection uh, and how, how wonderful that is. Thank you. That was very long. Oh, it was very helpful. I, I appreciate that perspective for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, that that talk I had with the um, teacher, I guess I had been feeling like I had one foot in the profession, you know, and I'm sure this goes, again, I don't want to make this too much about teaching. I mean, I know Hogetsu is here and she's, um, you know, her work is, I'm sure also, you know, extremely challenging in this time and can feel consuming in you know, all types of professions. But in my case, I felt like I had like kind of one foot in the profession last year Cause I was really like, Oh, I don't know about this. You know, um, I, and you know, one foot in and one foot in like just going to find something else to do. And so having that talk with this, you know, a Zen priest who had been, she's retired now, um, but had taught for 26 years. It, you know, it just encouraged me to like jump in with both feet and that, to me, for me at least, having one foot in is more depleting than um, going for it in a way. And I have felt, you know, despite how difficult this has been, like each day I feel ready again, even though I kind of know what's going to happen, which is like, it's going to be hard. <laughs> um, there's going to be hard conversations. There's going to be, 
demands on me that I'm not expecting, but I feel energized by it. Like, uh, and so, and what's helped by it, my energy is possible. I feel like in some way by just accepting that this is absolutely the work I'm doing right now. And, um, and just to do it. And, you know, and I guess not to worry too much if I can't get 30 minutes of Zazen in that day, because then that that's like treating Zazen, not like how I should be treating it in a way. It's okay if it's not that much. And so her, her conversation with me gave me kind of permission to think that way. And it was very inspiring because I thought of her from afar as like, here's like, whoa, this is, this person is like a hardcore Zen priest but she had this like kind of flexibility around the practice that was inspiring to me. And I also understand what you're saying a lot too. It's like, but you know, these kind of, that kind of work can be absolutely depleting. And so how do you take care of yourself? And I'm very aware of that too. So, so I appreciate that. I get sooner the uh, her hand up. Yes, oh, Bodhisattva, thank you so much for such a beautiful personal talk. Um, so much of it, I think, probably resonated with everyone, including this being here. Um, you know, it's interesting because as I was driving here and noticing our beautiful kind of waxing full moon, uh, I was contemplating complaints, which I often do a lot. Um, You know, I do a lot of couples therapy, and often there's a lot of complaining that goes on in that context. And, uh, you know, as a psychotherapist, often people are complaining, but one teacher once told me, when you listen to complaint, listen for the wish. That there's a wish in the complaint burrito that's the soft (laughs) tender part that's that's so important and you know so I I appreciate you know like that no complaints whatsoever I was thinking but actually the student was becoming intimate with complaint and when you come intimate with complaint there's something some wonderful teachings there Mm -hmm. you know so I hope I always have some complaints and I hope I always practice with them you know so it just reminded me of that of like you know there can be in that story uh, which I've heard from Reb um, (laughs) there can be this sense of like you should not have complaints but I actually think if you go into complaint uh, you then sit in the lap of Buddha you know and there's connection so thank you very much for this beautiful talk thank (laughs) you I really appreciate that too And it reminds me of, you know, working with students. It's, um, you know, again, they're having a real hard time. And so these days can start where it's like, you're you're surprised at like some of the quote unquote negativity that comes out a little bit, you know, because you, but what I, you know, so I appreciate the direction here of like, what, what's the, what's the wish behind that. Right. And I, so much of it is like safety, security, um, community, um, connection, choice. Um, and so, yeah, to continue 
I really appreciate go rather than be repelled by that, those complaints to accept them and to go into them with that open heartedness. And so, yeah, that, that's an awesome perspective. Uh, okay. So I don't know what, how much time, what time you need to wrap up there in Ebenezer. Do we have time for one or two more comments? Jan. Um, the thing that impressed me about your talk, Bo, was um, that you the first part of your talk was focused on, at least for me, the need for comfort. And um, I don't usually think of myself as a person who needs comforting. Um, so I, I really appreciate that focus. And uh, I'm going to think a lot about that. Another thing that struck, struck me from the conversation with Hogetsu and so on is um, a person who complains and is not listened to becomes a nag. <laughs> and um, that's very interesting that... Um, you can forestall you can forestall complaints just by listening mm. and, and I've tried to do that um, I I had a major failure about two months ago of listening to a complaint and you know you either listen to the complaint and understand what's behind it or you just think I gotta get out of here I don't want to hear this you know and um, I try not to take the attitude, I got to get out of here. I don't want to listen to this. Uh, but I did. And uh, it's <laughs> sorry about that. You know, I really uh, didn't listen to the complaint and uh, talk to the person who had was having difficulty. So um, it's it's really important to realize that when there's a complaint there's always something behind it that maybe that maybe you should not deal directly with what the person is saying you, you need to pay attention to how they're feeling one of the biggest experiences of my life was i was taking care of my grandchild and um i think i've told this story about a million times at sangha and um, uh, her parents had left her with me and she did not like it and she was really crying hard and, and I had this feeling I've got to get out of here I can't stand this mm. and then I thought then I thought I remembered my grandmother being in this very same situation with me I mean almost exactly and I thought okay don't do whatever that, don't do that. <laughs> so you've got to figure out something else. It doesn't matter what you do as long as it's not that. And so I said to my granddaughter, um, 
gosh, it's really, it really hurts a lot when your parents leave you and, and with somebody that you're, you're not really that familiar with it. You know, I'm sorry that you feel so bad. We had the best time together that we've ever had mm. because I paid attention to not what she was saying. You know, I don't want to be here with you. Why don't you, you know, how could they do this to me? Yada, yada. But just to address how she was feeling instead of dealing directly with the complaint. Mm-hmm. That's all I have to say about it. And I think your talk was the the talk progressed through different moods, starting with the need for comfort and going to um, how you how you keep practice going along with your profession. And it was all really interesting. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I think your story is so profound. Um, and it strikes me that, you know, we're talking about something other than listening in a way, because it's not just like taking in someone's words, but it's like a whole, you know, really, really being aware of the person and what they're putting out there, you know. Um, and that's, that's, you know, when we talk about skill, that's something that needs to be practiced and I feel like can be really developed with what we do here. Um, and not only here, but, um, so I really appreciate that story. It's beautiful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That feels like the regard of Kanzeon. <laughs> the regard, yes. Yeah. You regarded yeah. this. I, I was having a little trouble with Kanzeon and his miracles. That... <laughs> <laughs> I got to admit it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm with you. Yeah. This, it's yeah. a safe place. It's a safe place to admit that. Yeah. <laughs> 